Hello, welcome to Aquas Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the literary process of conversion. We often take for granted that there are Muslims in so many regions of the world, and yet we often don't think about, well, how that came about. And today we'll be doing so by looking at one of the largest but least familiar regions of the Muslim world, Bengal. And we'll be asking how Bengalis became Muslim, and by the same token, how Islam became Bengali. If we look on a map today, the region of Bengal is divided between the Indian state of West Bengal and the country of Bangladesh, founded in 1971. And together, they're home to some 175 million Muslims. That's a large population with a very rich literary, cultural and religious heritage that stretches back to the Middle Ages, when the coastal region of Bengal, particularly the port of Chittagong, were one of the great trade and indeed cultural centres of the Indian Ocean, home to Hindus, Buddhists, Portuguese traders from the 1600s, British merchants as well, and indeed to a rich and varied population of Muslims coming from Afghanistan, from northern India, and indeed teaching the new religion of Islam to the many peoples of the forests, of the villages, and the towns and cities of Bengal. We'll be looking in particular today at one of the most important texts in the history of Bengali Islam, the Nabi Vamsha, written between the 1620s and 40s by Sayyid Sultan. It was the first major work of Islam in the Bangla language, and it played a tremendously important role in bringing Islam to Bengal, and in doing so, converting Bengalis, but also, as we'll see, in a strange way, converting or at least adapting Islam to this new local environment. Joining me today is Aisha Irani. She's an Associate Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and she's the author of The Muhammad Avatada, Salvation History, Translation, and the Making of Bengali Islam, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. It was also a finalist in the American Academy of Religions Book Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, Naim. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I've so enjoyed learning your, well, reading your book and, and learning from it. And, and I'm sure many of our listeners today will as well, because we're going to be talking about a, a region of the world which has a really kind of very large, but really, all things considered, a all too little known Muslim population. That's to say the Muslims of Bangladesh 
around 150 million of them, and the Muslims who also speak the same language, Bengali or Bangla, as we'll probably be calling it, in the state of West Bengal in India, where there are around something like 25 million Muslims. So we've got this really huge Muslim community that since the Middle Ages have been creating a very rich Islamic literature, as well as a Hindu literature, and a kind of literature of drawing upon uh, many of these different varied traditions in their own language and in the various sort of literary registers that we might talk about of that Bengali or Bangla language. And we're going to be focusing, focusing especially today on this really important and all too little known text until you wrote your book, the Nabi Vamsha, the biography of the Prophet Muhammad that was the first biography of the Prophet to be written in the Bangla language sometime around the 1620s, 30s, 40s. So I wonder if you could start us off, Aisha, by setting the scene. Perhaps you can paint for listeners a verbal picture of the the geographical, political, and crucially the cultural context in which our author, Sayyid Sultan, wrote this biography of the Prophet Muhammad, the Nabi Vamsha. So Sayyid Sultan was a late 16th, early 17th century Muslim intellectual who lived in the region of Chittagong in today's southeast Bangladesh. Now, during his lifetime, Chittagong was under the rule of the Theravad Buddhist kings of Arakan, a region in today's Myanmar. So these Buddhist kings lived in the shadow of the sultans of Bengal and cultivated themselves as would-be sultans. They ruled over a cosmopolitan yet Islamicizing court, which drew upon the intellectual, administrative, and martial talents of numerous Bengali Muslims to enhance their kingly authority and the prestige of their court. Um, now, for several centuries, Chittagong had been coveted for its bustling port on the Bay of Bengal, and up until 1588 or so, had been bitterly contested by three regional powers, uh, the Muslim rulers of Bengal, the Hindu kings of Tripura, and the Buddhist rulers of Arakan. So in 1576, uh, the Mughal ruler, uh, Akbar, had defeated the Afghan ruler, Dawood Karani, the last of the independent sultans of Bengal. But it was in, in 1583 then that the Mughals finally shifted their focus from the northwest of Bengal to the low-lying regions of East Bengal and Southeast Bengal. Now, these regions were held at the time by a group of amorphous group of 12 chieftains led by a dissident of Khan uh, called Isa Khan. And uh, Mughal rule over Chittagong, uh, the southern southeasternmost region of Bengal, really, was only accomplished as late as 1666, when Shaista Khan, the Mughal governor, finally brought this area under Mughal control. So until then, it continued to be held by the Arakanese. Now, considering Chittagong's tumultuous fast, these eight decades from 1588 to about 1666 under Arakani's rule was a period of relative stability. And uh, you see that there are various economic and trade indicators that show that Chittagong over this time period uh, 
and over and above its you know, existing importance as a port city, was also an important center of rice and textile production. This made the region uh, the single most important source of revenue for the Arakanese state. You also have the presence of the Portuguese in the region at this time. So in the early 16th century, Arakanese rulers courted the Portuguese for their trade. And by 1567, you had Portuguese missionaries who had established a, a presence in, in Chittagong. And by the early 17th century, you had the first erection of churches in Arakan as well. Now, all of this points to the fact that by Sayyid Sultan's time, Roshang, which was this multicultural capital of the Arakan, was really inhabited by all kinds of people. You had Afghan adventurers fleeing the Mughals. You had Portuguese pirates whom the Arakanese depended upon for the slave trade that fueled their agriculture and economy. And then you also had Bengali Muslims of varying socioeconomic backgrounds. Now, this was also the period when this vibrant and now more stable Arakan uh, witnessed the emergence of Islamic Bangla literature, which I write about. There were two nodal literary production centers. So the first was at the Chittagonian port town, yes, the port town of Chittagong itself and its environs, and then you also had the Arakanese court. Now, the vast majority of these early modern East Bengali Muslim authors, among whom Sayyid Sultan, my author, was a pioneer, all of these authors, um, most of them tended to write independently. There were a few, a select few, who were affiliated with the uh, court of Arakan, uh, people like Daulat Kaji, Sayyid Alawal, uh, figures of these, um, of these kinds and of their stature were associated with uh, the Arakanese court. But for the most part, you had Bengali Muslim authors writing independently without being commissioned by royal patrons. Now, um, what is interesting about this, this time period is that it is a cultural setting in which you have an oral literate culture. So uh, stories are being told and retold orally, transmitted through the generations orally, but you also have them being written down by scribes. Uh, and um, in the Bengali Muslim context, they were writing in Perso-Arabic scripts as well as uh, later on in Bangla script. So um, you, had, you had all of this going on at the same time, yes, uh, orality as well as, um, as, well as uh, literature. Um, now, um, most significantly from my account, these, these texts that emerged from Arakanese Chittagong were constituted by and constitutive of the very historical moment that witnessed the most intense Islamization of Chittagong's rural populace. So that by 1872, when the British conducted the first census, over 70% of Eastern Bengal's population was determined to be Muslim. 
the question then is, how did this gradual process of religious change take place, right? So uh, scholars such as Richard Eaton has proposed a, a frontier model, yes, which suggests a, a coincidence between the riverine, the agrarian, and the Islamic frontiers within the political context of Mughal Bengal. Um, while the river systems of the Bengal uh, Delta drifted eastward, as, uh, as Eaton proposes, the Mughals, in order to increase their, their tax base, provided land grants to local pioneers prepared to clear the forested hinterland of the Eastern Delta. And many of these men were Muslims who participated then in this transformation of the frontier landscape. And on the one hand, they offered the bounties of agrarian cultivation to local peoples, but they also built village mosques, they built local Quran schools, and all of these then became the nodal points of Islamic identity and you know, its articulation in, in, in the East. As a result of such, such interventions that improved the lives of frontier peoples, many such pioneers uh, in, 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 in later times came to be established in, in memory as, as charismatic guides, as peers. And it is for these reasons that um, Eaton tells us that peer worship was a pervasive feature of Eastern Bengal's religious landscape. And by peer worship, we often use the word Sufis are often sort of, you know, equivalent to these peers, these saints in a sense. Yes, that's right. So in my study, I strive to refine our understanding of Bengal's Islamization by foregrounding the Nabi Bangsha, the prophet's lineage, as you could translate it, which is, as, as you mentioned, the first work, major work of Islamic doctrine to be written for Bengalis in their mother tongue. Now, rather than writing a history of how conversion to Islam happened in Bengal, which is this factual history that one could piece together from epigraphic, you know, documentary, art historical, geographical, archaeological, and other evidence, I uh, focus on Sayyid Sultan's uh, Nabi Vangsha to uncover how conversion was remembered and represented to have happened. So I study instead the role, the central role of vernacular translation in the conversion of Bengalis to Islam. Uh, a close reading of the text reveals that the greatest rivals to Islam in this period are the Bengali Vaishnavs with their missionizing activities, uh, which included public singing and dancing in God's name uh, as well as great festivals that they organized during this time. It was also a time of great temple building activity for the Bengali Vaishnavs. And all of this seems to have led to um, uh, the creation of the Bengali Vaishnavs as sort of the greatest rivals to Islam during uh, this time period. At least that is what comes through from the Nabi Vangsha. And by the, the Vaishnavas, these are one of the followers of, one of the groups of followers of, of Vishnu, one of the great gods of the, the Hindu religions. Yes, yes, thank you. So uh, that's that's as far as the cultural setting uh, for this for this work goes. That's so fascinating, Aisha, because you've really laid out for us this this sense that 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 really we're in this really surprisingly 
bustling cosmopolitan port city, Chittagong and its region, which is being, as you've mentioned, competed over by a range of different powers, a Buddhist state, uh, the Muslim-ruled uh, empire of the Mughals, particularly Akbar, of course, after whom Akbar's chambers named. And uh, we're seeing Akbar in his more military mode then. They gave him the title Akbar as the greatest, the great conqueror, of course, uh, who conquered so much of the Indian subcontinent rather than the mode of him as the... Uh, the convener of uh, religious debates in the, the Akbar's chamber mode. But also this sense then that, that there were a range of other rulers. There have been Afghans who have been moving down into the region and an earlier Turkic-established uh, Bengal Sultanate and indeed various smaller, what we'd now call sort of Hindu-ruled uh, states as well. And so you've also given this sense of, of the rivers as well, and the rivers and indeed the forest, because so much of, of Bengal and what's now Bangladesh is the, the Sundarbans, this great rainforest region with peoples who had lived in the forest and weren't really associated with any of what we would think of as now as the major world religions, whether Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or indeed the, the Christian Portuguese who were cropping up in in uh, Chittagong, just as they were at Akbar's court and talking in Akbar's original chamber of discussion in Fatipur Sikri. And I think what's so interesting is that is, is you're looking at this text, indeed this text the Nabi Bamsha as, as as you described, uh, a record of the cultural memory, the perceptions of, of Bangla-speaking Muslims themselves of how they became Muslim. Because it's been one of the big puzzles for historians, hasn't it? And you mentioned the work of Richard Eaton. It's been one of the big puzzles for historians. How is it at this sort of this edge of Islamization, the furthest sort of east that, okay, down east in, we have the maritime worlds of Southeast Asia, the Malay and Indonesian Muslims. But really, what's now Bangladesh and West Bengal is the sort of the eastern edge of Islamization, this continental mode. After that, we have smaller Muslim minorities in Burma, today's Myanmar, and elsewhere, and indeed in Thailand. But it's really Bangladesh is this sort of edge where there's this puzzle that how so far east would we have such a, a dense Muslim population, so many people converted on, on the edge rather than in some of the patchier regions in the middle where there are a larger um, larger Hindu population survived vis-a-vis -vis Muslims, sort of, you know, in, in North India, for example. And what you're showing us then is, let's say, the role of ideas and memories and text and the imagination and crucially this the language of the local peoples themselves as a as a vehicle for understanding and and perhaps domesticating localizing their new muslim faith and yet the nabi vamsha isn't what we might ordinarily expect when we think of a biography of the prophet muhammad after all nowadays if one picks up a a life of, of the Prophet, whether written by a Muslim or a non-Muslim, it's largely going to be the, the sort of the same time and place is going to be set out. It's going to be in, in, in the desert environment of Mecca and Medina. There's going to be a kind of a certain fairly kind of standardized picture of the Prophet and his time and place. But we're seeing something rather different in the Nabi Vamsha. So could you describe the text for us then, whether in its language, its metaphors, or its narrative approach? The Nabi Vangsha putatively translates the Perso-Arabic genre of the Kissa Solangbia, or the tales of the prophets, into Bangla. Now, this genre is written as a salvation history, wherein all history is represented as unfolding according to a cosmic plan. So in other words, it begins with creation, 
the emergence of Adam, the first human and first pre-Islamic prophet. And after the tail cycle of Adam, usually follow the tail cycles of the of the typical pre-Islamic prophets, including Seth, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, and Jesus. And this, this lineup often leads up to a full-blown biography of the Prophet Muhammad. Not always, but sometimes. Um, and uh, the Prophet Muhammad is treated then as the culmination of religious history. Now, in order to make this prophetology acceptable to his target audience, the non-Muslim peoples of Bengal, uh, Sayyid Sultan introduces some fascinating innovations. So let me begin with uh, talking a little bit about these narratival innovations. So a novel Indic prophetology um, precedes the traditional line of prophets, which includes deities such as Shiva or Ram and various other avatars or descents of Vishnu, none of whom are successful in eradicating evil from the earth. So at length, then, uh, Adam is eventually created. Now, moving ahead through the usual tale cycles, we find that Sayyid Sultan inserts a tale cycle of the Hindu deity Krishna between the traditional tale cycles of Abraham and Moses. Well, usually uh, one would find an account of Joseph. Um, so this is as far as the, the narratival innovations go, and we can discuss this further as we go along. But let me also talk a little bit about his innovations in terms of language. So translators of religious texts generally have to choose whether they prefer to foreignize their translations, that is, retain key doctrinal terms in translation, thereby introducing foreign terms to the target language, or whether to find appropriate cultural translations, what I call, what has been called dynamic equivalence in the target language. Uh, Sultan wisely chooses the latter approach, yes, of using, finding dynamic equivalence. So the term Nabi is translated by Sayyid Sultan as avatar, a term that is easily comprehensible to a Bengali audience. Now, avatar is a dynamic equivalent because it shares the key characteristic of the Nabi, who also comes in age after age to save humankind from error and moral decline. Similarly, the term Allah itself is translated as Niranjan, the stainless one, a term that is familiar to Bengalis, particularly to the followers of Vishnu, the Vaishnavas, and those who worship the Hindu, um, and, and also those who uh, um, understand this as uh, it, shares, it shares characteristics with the Islamic understanding of the Godhead as being untainted and immaculate. So on the one hand, it is familiar to the people, the Vaishnavas of Bengal, because Niranjan is a term used by them for their supreme deity. But it also shares characteristics with the Islamic understanding of 
how the Godhead is understood as being as being immaculate, as being untainted, as being ineffable. Well, this is really extraordinary because what we're hearing here then is that that figures such as Krishna, the Hindu God, as we might often think, or indeed in this Vaishnava uh, tradition of Hindu religiosity, then yeah, the the avatars, the incarnations of of, of Vishnu. And you're explaining to us really this rather radical, but nonetheless very localized and very effective religious vision of, of not rejecting Krishna or rejecting Vishnu, but actually incorporating them into a large, all-encompassing Muslim vision of, uh, of the universe, of the cosmos, and indeed of the place of Bengal and, and Bengalis in it. So this is really quite striking that, as you, as, as you mentioned, that, that there are many, many, the, the genre of biographies of the Prophet Muhammad, of course, it existed since Ibn Ishaq in the, the, the 800s and so on. And Muhammad as being in the, the Quranic lineage of prophets all the way back, as you mentioned, through Ibrahim, Abraham, and Musa, Moses, back to Adam. But now we have this insertion of these other figures there. For other Muslims, this wasn't, I suppose, a sort of a, an impossible idea because there's the Quranic idea of, of God sending thousands of prophets to many different peoples, not only, let's say, the, the biblical prophets, Abraham, etc. So it's really run, what we see here is said, Sultan, really running with a kind of a theological possibility in Islam that goes back to the Quranic text itself and using it in this context in which the majority of the population in, in Bengal in the 1600s, the majority of the population are far from Muslim yet. They haven't even perhaps heard of this figure, Muhammad. But saying Sultan then through his Nabi Banshu, saying, you haven't got to reject everything your parents, your grandparents, your ancestors knew. You haven't got to reject their world vision. You, but we can incorporate it into something larger, this larger vision of the cosmos then. And I think this is really kind of an extraordinary theological, as much as a, a narrative text that you've you you bring it to this, this wider new audience uh, as well. So talking of audiences, then, and taking us back to the time of Said Sultan and when the Nabi Vamsha was written in 1620s, 30s, 40s, can you tell us about who was the audience he was addressing in in writing this text and? How further did he go about making the life of the Prophet meaningful and even intelligible to these non-Muslim Bengalis at the time? I mean, after all, he was addressing people for whom even the notion of a Prophet, a, a Nabi in the, the Arabic term then, even the notion of a Prophet sent by a monotheistic God was, was perhaps really quite unfamiliar. Yes, that's right. So um, Sayyid Sultan's addresses, his ostensible addresses, are the Muslims of Bengal. But when you, um, when you read further into the text, you realize that he's, he's addressing all the people of Bengal, and uh, the majority of whom are non-Muslims. Um, and of course, there are a few Muslim neophytes as well. But through writing the Nabi Vangsha, he's, he's really hoping to invite more Bengalis to his faith. He himself tells us that he wishes to steer Bengalis away from the popular tales of the Hindu deities Ram and Krishna and regale them with the stories of the Prophet Muhammad. So that is sort of the, the goal he's laid himself, um, for, for, laid out for himself. 
The polemic around Krishna in the Nabi Vansha, however, and that's something we will discuss further, suggests that Sayyid Sultan considered the Bengali Vaishnavs to be his, his greatest opponents. So his writings were also aimed then at convincing them about the error of their ways. Now, to do all of this, Sultan adopts a range of really sophisticated rhetorical tactics to rewrite Bengali history. He aims to convince his audience that he, uh, that they have they've had um, they that they they really have a key role to play in this grand teleology of Islam. Yes. Uh, and that they can continue to play that role if they could somehow recover their origin stories. Um, so he wants he, he wants to tell them these these retell them their own ancient tales, um, and he wants to remind them that they have an important place to play, play a role to play in this, this, um, this uh, long teleology of Islam. Now, um, the tales he tells them of their past then is one that recasts Islamic prophetology to include Hindus and their deities into the Islamic fold. So this then results in an altogether novel approach to missionizing. Sayyid Sultan casts conversion to Islam, then as you rightly mentioned, not as a break with the religious traditions of, of one's forebears, but rather as a recovery of the true religion of one's ancestors, if one could but correct one's understandings of one's religious past. Now, how does he go about accomplishing this? His his narrative innovations to include Hindu avatars into an Islamic prehistory of the prophets is one way to persuade his audience that the Hindus were the forerunners of Islam. Also, it's important to remember that for all practical purposes, when the Nabi Vansha was being performed in Bangla, it would have sounded like an ancient Hindu tale, a Puran. A tale about Vaishnav avatars rather than prophets, since the term prophet was translated into Bangla as avatar. Now, the tale cycle of the God turned prophet Krishna, yes, this Muslim Krishna, is also an interesting case of persuasion. So let's let's look at it a little bit. So here, the stories of Krishna's early life are retold from the viewpoint of Islamic morality. Krishna's cosmic play with the married women of Raja, his devotees, are castigated as sinful acts. And here lies the rub. On the, on the one hand, Sultan's narratological and rhetorical strategies undercut the Krishna avatar by first recasting him as reprehensible, uh, his acts as reprehensible, by imposing on the avatar the Islamic valence of the Nabi as morally as a morally upright human figure, human figure nonetheless, guided by God's command. Now, in helping Krishna's disciples see the avatar as debauched, he positions Islam and its prophets as morally superior. 
and implies that salvation can be achieved through the upright example of the Prophet of Islam alone. Yet, on the other hand, the author has appropriated the, th the term avatar from Muhammad himself, right? We've, we've discussed this. So in underscoring commonalities then between the Krishna avatar and the Nabi Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, through their respective narratives and their missions, he now wants to downplay difference. He wants to minimize difference and make Muhammad a familiar figure. So Sultan is careful to tell us that the Nabi is, or the Prophet, is created by God and sent down to reform humankind. So this is, of course, because the avatar in Indian understanding is, is the very descent of the Godhead itself. The theory, therefore, is untenable with Islamic doctrine. For the acceptance of the theory would be tantamount to what Muslims call shirk, associating others with God. So Sultan then is keen to confiscate the Vaishnav doctrine of the avatar, uh, and he is eager to construct an Islamic ethical framework by emphasizing all that the prophet of Islam is not. So this results in a kind of rhetorical opacity, a kind of rhetorical obfuscation in some sense, which draws Krishna into these undulating patterns of positive and negative comparison with Muhammad, which serve two important purposes. The positive comparisons by undermining the otherness of Islam's prophet renders his figure familiar, authentic, and legitimate, while simultaneously imbuing it with the charisma of the avatar. And the negative comparisons subvert Krishna and ultimately subordinate him to Muhammad. So, um, though Sayyid Sultan begins by inserting an Arab prophet into a Bengali landscape, he ultimately accomplishes a wholesale incorporation of the Hindu gods into an Islamic prophetology. As for Krishna, who is the supreme deity of the Bengali Vaishnavs, he manages to displace him altogether by giving him a central, a grudging place in his new prophetology. So remember, the Krishna tale is located between the longest tale cycles in the Nabi Vangsha, between the stories of Abraham and Moses. And so, quite literally, this beloved Indic avatar is, is drowned out by the longer tales of these important pre-Islamic Nabi avatars. So in all of these ways, Sayyid Sultan succeeds in establishing Islam and its prophet as authentically Indic and Bengali, Hinduani, and in doing so expands what I call the ontological and epistemological structures of the Bengali imagination. So this enables Indic peoples to see themselves as the original forebears of Islam, as part of an Indo-Islamic salvation history, wherein those scriptures predict the advent of the Muhammad avatar, the avatar of the Kali age, which is the, the age of moral decline. So 
by such manipulation then of this Hinduani imagination, Sultan is effectively enabling a conversion of its peoples to Islam. Um, and he succeeds in achieving in some ways the very goal he believes all scriptural translation should accomplish. Yes, that all scriptural translation should in fact uh, accomplish a conversion of the target audience. That's so fascinating, Aisha. I mean, you've given us this sense here that the Nabi Vamsha is at once a work of comparative theology. Evidently, the author is familiar with the, the let's say, the theological concepts, terms, as well as the, the sacred history, the, the, the mythology, I suppose one might say, of, of the Vaishnava Hindus. So it's a work of comparative theology, but it's also 400 years ago. It's really a work of comparative literature in the sense that it's comparing two bodies of, of tales and, and stories and trying to, to bring them together. It's also, I suppose, a, an example of what many anthropologists and I suppose philosophers of language or uh, have, have called the, the search for commensurability, trying to find equivalent concepts in one language or one religion or one conceptual system with those of another. And it really reminded me actually of, of what actually those Jesuits who were cropping up at Akbar's court in Akbar's chamber, they were there in Chittagong, as you mentioned, and they're also at the same time, the famous Jesuit missionary Matteo Ricci at the court of the, the Ming emperors in, in Beijing. And pretty much exactly the same time, Ricci 1610s, 20s, and Ricci's learning the classical Chinese of the Confucian canon. And he starts using, in a sense, a kind of a similar um, set of theological, comparative literature, commensurable sort of techniques, really, to try to persuade the Chinese that this religion wasn't foreign to them, was part of their own ancient tradition as well. In that case, the first emperor, Yao, the kind of semi-mythical first emperor, of, uh, of Chinese history began to be reinterpreted as, as Noah or Nu, as Muslims would call him. And actually later Muslims too would, would, would uh, whether drawing upon, in some cases drawing upon actually these Jesuit texts or in some cases through their own learning of the Chinese Confucian canon would, would actually similarly kind of search for those equivalences that, are, that we've seen then between the Chinese emperors and the Muslim prophets that we've seen in your cases in, in Bengal then, the equivalences between the, the avatars and the, um, the incarnations or, or the uh, descents then of, uh, of the, the Vaishnava gods then and the equivalences with the, uh, the biblical and Quranic prophets. So thinking more, more you know, broadly then, opening up uh, our discussion then, what, what does the, the Nabi Vantra tell us then about the the character of, of Islam in Bengal, and, and perhaps by extension, what does it tell us about how in, in previous eras, Islam's been adapted to different cultural environments? So, um, as I mentioned earlier, the Nabi Vangsha really is firmly situated in this oral literate culture, and um, it emphasized lit that literacy was um, it, what I'd like to emphasize is that literacy was really confined to an elite few at this time, and the text would have primarily reached its rural audience through performance. So the Nabi Vamsha aimed sort of to bind its audience into a, into a cohesive, cohesive ummah, 
right? Centered around uh, the author as guru, as, as master, as spiritual teacher, and uh, which is the immediate locus of his of, of charisma. And he himself is positioned along an axis of spiritual authority that reaches back into the Islamic past to the Prophet Muhammad and the line of the Islamic prophets all the way back to Allah. So my exploration then of the text of the Nabi Vangsha um, sort of follows this, this oral literate culture and um, it should be then, you know, uh, understood within these practices of authorship and authority that were constitutive and constituted by uh, this Bengali Islamic community of believers. So, um, Sayyid Sultan, as one who, who really understood the Quran, felt obliged to, to spread it to his local community of believers. And it's ostensibly, his, his translation is ostensibly motivated by this pious fear of God, um, uh, where Sultan feels that um, he should be actively engaged as a peer author with issues of Islamic identity construction uh, in the Bengali sociocultural milieu. And he really, he really desires to strengthen his community's understanding of Islam and invite others to, this, to his, his faith in a very complex religious world uh, where, you know, uh, those who identified as Muslim were in the, in the minority. So this is a, a world wherein you have very, very fuzzy religious boundaries. Uh, group boundaries are not precisely defined. They transmute gradually. Uh, you, have, uh, you have geopolitical regions that are you know, only, only really drawn into, provided as maps for us by colonial cartographers. But before that time, uh, what you could imagine the village as a as a nodal point, and out of it radiating outward from the space of the village, uh, it would sort of shade off into other villages. But that's about how you would sort of think about um, regional space spaces of the time. Now, even today in rural Bangladesh, you have you know, communities that are cross-denominational, that, uh, that, uh, that accommodate the worship of the goddess of snakes, Manasa. Uh, you have the worship of Muslim charismatics. You have uh, the worship of um, uh, worship around the Natha cult, which is a cult uh, of, uh, of yogis. Uh, who uh, go back all the way to um, uh, figures like Goraknath, who were basically practicing yogis. Um, so you have a very, very complex multicultural uh, milieu uh, in which Islam is, is also one of the players. Um, and as a result of this, um, you have you know, a person like Malvi Abdul Majid uh, in 1876 really complaining about the habits of Muslims in his time, saying that, you know, they can only be characterized by um, their, their dress, their wearing of caps, 
and their consumption of beef. But other than that, um, it's very, very difficult to tell who is a Muslim and who is a non-Muslim. Uh, and so, um, you know, one can only then imagine how much more complex the society must have been in Sayyid Sultan's time, uh, a century or two earlier. Now, Sayyid Sultan sort of marks his community into traditional categories, Islamic categories of the believers, the Mormons, the unbelievers or the Kafirs, and what he calls the hypocrites or the munafiks. And um, for him, it's that it's that category of the munafik that it, or the hypocrite is uh, that is very problematic. And he warns his people from you know backsliding into uh, into their previous ways of error. So, so what, what then does this, this Nabi Vangsha tell us about other, uh, other Islamic communities? And um, how, can we, how can we understand the way in which Islam spread in other communities? So, um, Sultan really seeks to unite his community around the book of the Quran that he, he has translated for their benefit. And even though the translation of the Quran never really took place in Bengal until the modern period, it is really through translations of such para-Quranic materials that Islam spread. And this applies to other regions of the Islamic world as well. So three para-Quranic genres were extremely popular in the medieval Islamic world. The tales of the prophets, the biography of the prophet Muhammad himself, and also the literature that developed around the prophets Isra and Miraj. The Isra being his night journey from Mecca to Jerusalem, and uh, the Miraj being his ascension through the seven heavens. Now, this literature became crucial in the spread of Islam in other cultural environments as well. And we see all of these come into play in the Bengali context. Now, the other very important thing to keep in mind is that translation, the role of translation into the vernacular. Um, the translation into the vernacular was the means by which local teachers could both make the unfamiliar prophet familiar, and translation was also the means by which local heroes and deities could be assimilated within the Islamic fold. So in the Persian tales of the prophets, this Persian tales of the prophets genre, you see how pre-Islamic Persian kings, such as Jamshid or Kayumaz, uh, came to be assimilated within the tales of the prophets, um, the tales of the Islamic prophets. And Sayyid Sultan follows the same impulse uh, that he learns from the Persian translators of the tales of the prophets to incorporate, in his case, local deities within Islamic prophetology. So you've given us this, this sense, Aisha, that, that actually extraordinary a text as Sayyid Sultan's Nabi Vamsha was, is actually continuing a kind of approach, albeit in Bangla, that has been explored in by other Muslim writers in other regions, 
where they're trying to make Islam local or meaningful, intelligible. And part of, I suppose, a process of incorporating people's local identities and histories into a, an Islamic universalism, I suppose. And yet, in the, the, the 19th century, the great age that we're still part of, the great age of Islamic reform, of Islamic reformation, one might say, as you've already hinted at, various Bengali Muslim reformers started to reject not only perhaps the Nabivamsha, but also this whole style of Islam that was incorporating supposed, well, let's say, from their perspective, non-Muslim Hindu avatars, incarnations, and stories of Krishna, and so on. Somewhat ironic, I suppose, because nowadays we know that actually what they saw as being sort of these misunderstandings of Islam on the edge of the Muslim world in Bengal were actually quite typical, even in the centres of the Islamic world, perhaps in places like Iran. But perhaps can you tell us a little more of what happens then in the after the centuries of the 17th, 18th century, in which the Nabi Vamsha has been so important, re recited orally among so many peoples and villages. In the 19th century, the Nabi Vamsha itself and perhaps that type of religiosity comes under criticism from these local Muslim reformers. So perhaps could you tell us a little about that? Yes, um, that's a that's a very interesting question. And um, this is um, a text that, even in Sayyid Sultan's own words, uh, was characterized as Hinduani. And um, uh, his translation aimed to be Hinduani, meaning Hinduani can be understood as both Indic and Indian, right? And also, um, so in its in its ethnic um, uh, understanding, but also in its understanding around uh, the religion of the Hindus. Now, it is precisely this sort of ambiguity about Sayyid Sultan's translation then that came to be um, came to be problematic for Muslim reformers because they saw in, uh, in Sayyid Sultan's uh, translatorial processes um, things that were objectionable to them. They found it entirely uh, syncretic and the syncretic uh, tradition um, was, was, was castigated by Muslim reformers who wanted to now recover a pure Islam. Now, um, what is also fascinating is that when we think about what Sayyid Sultan was doing, he was he was he was often treating the prophets as Hindu deities. So when you when you look at his his passages about uh, Adam and Eve, for instance, um, you actually have an entire description of how Eve is, is this, uh, treated as a goddess. She is described as, as a goddess. And uh, there, is, there, are, there are also long sections about um, the the uh, love play between prophets uh, such as Adam and Eve. And, um, and this would have 
been treated with uh, with great um, great um, um, uh, would not have been treated very well by the modern uh, Muslim reformists. However, Sayyid Sultan's own um, uh, desire was to to elevate the stature of these prophets to the stature of deities, just as you know the Hindu gods have um, have been described to have love play. So too, uh, prophets now are treated in the very same mode as, as Hindu deities. This, of course, was not just to um, make the prophets more familiar to, um, to local people, but also to elevate their status to the stature of, of gods. So this, however, was not something that the modern Muslim reformist mind could quite grasp. Um, so, so many of the, you know, this so-called syncretic innovations uh, of Sayyid Sultan, including the fact that he was now deeming the Prophet Muhammad as an avatar, was looked askance at uh, by the modern Muslim reformer. Now, what you then had was translations of uh, the very text that uh, Sayyid Sultan may have used as, you know, as one of his many exemplar in his translations, um, uh, such as Nishapuri's uh, Persian translation, uh, Persian Kesasolandriya, um, or the Tales of the Prophet. Um, this Persian work was translated into Urdu, and it is from the Urdu translation of that Persian work that we then had a Bangla translation of a very, very vast Qisasul Anbiya, or Tales of the Prophets, that was now written in what is known as Dubhashi Bangla, a Bangla that was heavily infused with Urdu words. Now, uh, this Bangla was considered to be more, uh, more of a religiolect than uh, this, the previous Bangla of the, the early modern period, because this now had so much more uh, Quranic vocabulary, so much more uh, Arabic and Farsi uh, words that were now being infused into the language via the medium of Urdu. And this was considered to be a more, um, more uh, religiously favorable language to be writing in by Muslim reformists. So for a variety of reasons then, um, the Nabi Vangsha came to be relegated to the, the the past in some sense and it, you know it was it it never came to be uh published in print it didn't make that transition from uh manuscript into print like many other you know great works of early modern literature did uh, in in the bengali context thank you so much i mean that it actually being somewhat flippant, but not entirely. It, it somewhat makes me think of, of Victorian Methodists 
looking with with disdain and perhaps horror at certain Renaissance paintings of Italian Catholics depicting um, stories from the Bible in, let's say, kind of Roman or classical sort of form influenced by the Roman gods as well. So we've seen these sort of tensions within a religious tradition, of course, as we have in Christianity as well, especially in, in the 19th century or the earlier Christian Reformation. Thank you. And you've also given us this, this sense too, that, that as in so much of the, the, the legacy, the manuscript legacy of the Islamic world, insofar as printing came relatively late, really, only really adapted to the Islamic world in a significant way in the mid 19th century. So since the Nabi Bamtur isn't printed until 1978, it kind of becomes one of these lost texts and lost traditions. And so much of what was really a very rich high literary complex kind of theological tradition gets misunderstood as being oh this is folk this is illiterate religiosity when actually it wasn't it was the the high complex literary religiosity as well as oral traditions of a previous era so by the turn of the 20th century then Said Sultan's Nabi Vamsha had been pushed into the shadows by these Muslim reformers in colonial and then post-colonial Bengal and so consequently it's despite its great popularity, as you've told us in manuscripts and verbal performances from the 17th to the 19th century, it wasn't printed then until the end of the 20th century, pretty much. So let me ask you, why should we read it again today? Well, that's a good question. And um, what I what I hope to show through my book is that the Nabi Vangsha is an astonishing work of missionary literature. Its importance lies in its extraordinary strategies of persuasion. And uh, however, one of several reasons why Islamic Bangla literature has been overlooked by Bengali literary historiographers in, in their nationalist historiographies is because it has been categorized as uh, translation literature. Now, what is troubling is the fact that translation literature is pitched against original literature. And this is problematic for two reasons. First, such a binary kind of presumes the derivative, the tired, secondary nature of translated literature as, as compared to original literature. It ignores, it really ignores its primacy in the target culture and undermines its originality and power, especially when it broke upon Bangla's literary horizon. Translation, as scholars have, have pointed out, is really one among many forms of rewriting, such as histories, anthologies, you know, summaries, ed editions, and you know, commentaries, all of these different modes of rewriting. And uh, translators, however, as rewriters, um, as you know, this, this uh, important scholar, André Lefebvre, has observed, are really the constructors of culture on a very basic level. Um, and this has indeed been overlooked by literary historians because as a monumental and yet simple fact, it is supposedly transparent, right? And um, so translation then uh, sort of opens the way to what we could call uh, subversion and transformation. Uh, depending on, on where we, we, we stand, right, uh, in, the, in the context of the dominant poetics of the, the time. And um, 
It is therefore a mistake to underestimate this exceptional power that the Nabi Vangsha as a translation played in the process of religious socialization and identity construction, especially when one considers that most early modern Bengali auditors would scarcely have had any linguistic access to the originals available to the translator. So for all practical purposes, the translation, is, as Derrida says, becomes the original. So this is one very important reason why um, the Nabi Vangsha needs to be read. And a second important reason is that, um, you know, the concept of the original is really, as, as Susan Bassnett has noted, a product of Enlightenment thinking. It's a modern invention. Whereas medieval authors had a, had a very different relationship to the original. Uh, the medieval translators, I should say, had a very different relationship to the original, where uh, the, the original and the translation were not uh, pitched against each other, but rather uh, should be treated as sort of shades that passed from one into another. And so um, uh, many would have called Syed Sultan's work um, an adaptation, a transcreation, or a retelling. But I insist that it should be called a translation because, you know, these anxieties of holding on to a, an original are ours. They are our modern anxieties. They're not Sultan's uh, anxiety. And it's not, um, it's, it's really, this anxiety is not that of an early modern Bengali author who is constantly challenging our own need to cling to an hegemonic original. So in examining how Sultan's translation contextualizes processes of conversion, I have outlined a hermeneutic model for how an Islamic missionary translation was designed as a tool for social action, an instrument for conversion. And I hope that this is an important reason why we should go back to it, go back to the Nabi Vangsha and read it. Well, having read your book as well as uh, listened to your persuasive uh, argument there, I'm absolutely convinced and I'm sure our listeners will be as well. Professor Aisha Irani, thank you so much for speaking to us today in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on this show, uh, Professor Green. Absolute pleasure. Da 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 da